And hello, welcome. It's the Album Nerds Podcast. That was a little special treat for everybody out there. A very special ACDC style hello from your friends here at the Album Nerds Podcast. It's me, dude, and I got Andy. Andy, what's happening here, my friend? Wow, we are so, so thankful for your special hello there, buddy. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, uh, (laughs) we could probably get Patreon support just based on that. Just for that. Totally, totally. Welcome to another edition of the Album Nerds Podcast, everybody. Today on the show, we are doing our top five favorite songs of 1980. 1980? Holy moly. That's before you were born, my friend. Yeah, I was negative one. Negative one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you believe it? (laughs) How old were you? Uh, I was old enough to be curious... (laughs) Curious about my parts, but I was a kid. (laughs) You never can disclose your age. No, it's I'm a I'm a enigma, dude. I don't want you know. I could be a hundred. I could be ten. No one knows. Cannot be defined. No, I don't. I don't like to be defined by numbers. There you go. So, uh, (laughs) so how about the year 1980? There's a lot of. Stuff going on in 1980. Why don't you fill us in? This is like a history lesson for Mr. Negative One here. What'd you find out, bro? <laughs> well, let me tell you what was going on. Uh, Mount St. Helens, which I think is in the state of Washington. Yes. Is that right? Yep. Uh, that erupted. That was kind of a big deal, I guess. It 57 was, people were killed. Huge deal, man. Huge deal. Do you uh, remember this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was uh, a, a year or two after it happened, uh, a kid at school came... Uh, back from vacation with a little vial of Mount St. Helens ash that they were, you know, of course, after people get brutalized, then it turns into tourist attraction crap, which is (laughs) (laughs) so American, even in 1980. (laughs) Totally. Um, We also had the debut of CNN and the Rubik's Cube was invented or made popular. Got one right with me right here. All right. Love that Rubik's Cube. I'm sure you've solved it many times in the last uh, 38 years. (laughs) No, I did not solve it then. But now you cheat by finding the algorithms. People on uh, YouTube will teach you how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) In my day, we had to break it apart and put it together if you couldn't figure out how to solve it. (laughs) Or you'd peel the stickers off and glue them back on. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with the sticker approach. That's yeah. it. That seems like a good way to go. Oh, yeah. Get a little marker out and just color it. Um, that's what I had the Miracle on Ice. That was uh, – I've seen some of that footage. That was pretty exciting. The U.S. hockey team uh, come back there against uh, – it was the Soviets they were playing against. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, back when uh, in America the ultimate evil in the world were the Reds, right. the Ruskies. Yeah. The Ruskies, okay. The Commies. Yeah. That was a huge deal. And then uh, on a sad note, John Lennon – he was uh, shot that year as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in in the music, uh, you know, it was kind of uh, the punk movement was uh, wrapping up, and we had mm-hmm. a kind of the new wave was taking place, and we were kind of figuring out exactly what that was going to be. Um, you want to run through the so the top five uh, songs from that year? All right, so the top five songs of 1980, the very top of the charts, we had "Do That to Me One More Time." Captain and Tennille, Rock With You by Michael Jackson, which was from the 1978 album Off the Wall. 
Magic by Olivia Newton-John. Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Pink Floyd from their 1979, right at the end of 79, I believe, The Wall album. And this little number from the new wave of music. I believe that's called Call Me. Is that right? That was Call Me, the number one song of 1980, back when uh, punk was no longer king. We considered a lot of records here for the our favorites of 1980, our top five, our fave five, as we are calling it. Andy, did you have any that didn't quite make the cut that you would have liked to have talked about if we were doing a fave ten? Yeah, if we're doing Fave 10, I think there would have been a few others. Um, man, I really kind of fell for uh, this Cramps record, uh, Songs the Lord Taught Us. You ever you listen to them much? They're kind of like a like sort of goth rock sound to them. No, I have not. Not very much. I mean, I know what their album covers look like, but that's it. Yeah, like a little creepy. Uh, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, and also, uh, this a band called The Pretenders had a self-titled record to come out that year. I thought it was pretty cool. And uh, Bauhaus, uh, In the Flat Field, um, they were kind of at their peak at that time as well. So those, unfortunately, didn't make the cut for me, but they were really good records, and you would recommend them. Uh, what'd you have on your end, bro? I had The Dead Kennedys, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, which I'm not really a punk guy, but that's one of the few punk albums I classic punk albums I listen I can listen to all the way through and enjoy. Ozzy Osbourne, The Ozman Cometh, which was his first solo record. Randy Rhodes was the guitarist. It kind of felt like Old Black Sabbath, but it had a more modern 80s metal style. Van Halen, Women and Children First, which was their third record, I believe, but it was the first one with all songs written exclusively by them and a little harder edge sound. And, of course, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen had a good record that year, Billy Joel, Prince. I mean, all the standard guys, but uh, they weren't necessarily their best albums, so we decided to leave those boys on the side this time. Yes. Speaking of boys, shall we uh, jump into our top five countdown? Welcome to the 1980, everybody. Number five. You two ever hear of them? The album is Boy. It was their very first album, and here is a little taste. That was the the big hit from that record called I Will Follow. It's a great song, great album, released October 1980. It was a 42-minute long album produced by Steve Lillywhite. And uh, for those who don't know, U2 is an Irish rock band from Dublin, formed in 1976, although I'm sure you all know. Uh, you got Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton, and Larry Mullen Jr., 
You listened to this uh, debut album at all before this, Andrew? I confess I had not. Just out of curiosity, what were they doing? If they formed in 1976 and this is their debut record, do they have like an EP before this? Yes, or? I believe there was a there was an EP called Three. Okay, and some of those songs were re-recorded for this, but that, by the time they came to do this album, they had 40 songs ready to go. So they had been performing. Whoa. Yeah, they had been performing and writing and figuring out who they are for many years. Uh, before they got their first real record released on, and in those days you couldn't do it independently, so you had to wait till you got signed. So, mm-hmm. well, they sound like you too, right out of the gate here. Yeah, and it wasn't like they were still trying to figure things out, like some of these other brands are talking about. But uh, yeah, they're—it's pretty obvious, you know. Zabano and uh, Edge show all the way through. Yeah, and you know uh, some of the cool stuff that Steve Lillywhite did that you could hear it in that song. Did you hear the ting ting type of sounds? Yeah, yeah, it sounds kind of like like metal bits clanging together, sort of yeah. like in a dryer or something. Yeah, they were using like spokes from a wheel and broken glass and forks and all sorts of stuff. I think what you two needed at this point was to be free to create. And to continue to hone their sound, you know, I think this this is a building block. The reason I thought it was so important in 1980 was this is their very first. And, you know, the album's themes are psychological in nature, like the transition from adolescence to childhood to manhood with atmospheric sort of music and lyrics. And they were really trying and very creative and building the blocks that were required to come up with the Joshua Tree later and Octung Baby, two of the best rock records of all time. I don't know. So going, I mean, knowing you two today, I mean, I wasn't really introduced with them until like the mid nineties and they were already such big pop stars at the time. It's so hard for me to think about them, even not having all that stardom around them. So I, I, you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult to separate those, my idea of them from the actual music, especially on this early record, which does have a little, like you said, there's some creative elements to the recording process. It does sound a little grittier, a little edgier, no uh, pun intended, huh. <laughs> than some of their more recent work, you know, which is so polished and so clean sounding. You know what I mean? I do, I do. Let's, uh, let's listen to something a little bit different. This one's called The Ocean. The ocean is very atmospheric. Yeah. Uh, evidently, that's mentioning Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, is kind of the reference there. So I think we've probably talked enough about you too, but I think it's a great record. I'm glad you took a chance on it, and I'm glad that I got back into it. I haven't listened to that one in quite some time, so it's better than I remember. Yeah. It's cool hearing where these bands come from. You know, it's this is where they started, and Wow, they've really taken off from them, obviously. It's just weird to think that there was ever a day that they had a debut album because they've just been yeah, ex- around. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just assume that they've a constant forever in musical history. Yeah, moving on to uh, number four. All right, for my pick, I chose a New York City 
Yeah, I don't know. Would you find a genre for this? I guess I'd say like indie indie rock <laughs> band from New York City. <laughs> that very generic label called The Feelies and their debut record, Crazy Rhythms. So the Feelies were a band I was not familiar with previously, but as soon as I heard them, I, I knew I was going to like them. Um, they're a four-piece from New Jersey, and they became very popular in that sort of New York underground scene um, in the mid to in the early to mid '80s. They named themselves after a a story element from uh, Dolce's Huxley's Brave New World, which kind of sold me right there. Um, yeah, they were a very influential indie alternative rock band known for their very clean production. They wanted to uh, sound a lot different from the, the punk scene that was going on in the late 70s and went in total opposite direction with these very clean guitars, you know, an angular sound there. Little known fact, R.E.M. Uh, credits them for, for influencing their sound quite a bit, which I did not know. I hear it. Do you hear the similarities? Yeah. I, I, I could hear influences, yeah. R.E.M. is better. No offense, Feelies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the Feelies really didn't put out a huge amount of material. They were kind of popular just for, for a few years, and even at the time, they weren't widely accepted outside of New York. Uh, the critics loved them, but it took quite a while for, for the uh, the fans to really catch on to this, this sound they were going for. I think, for my opinion, they're, what makes them such an interesting band is is their drummer and their use of percussion throughout the record. It's Really interesting rhythms. The record's called Crazy Rhythms because he really lays down some interesting beats. And it's not always necessarily just on a traditional drum kit. He uses a lot of, kind of like you were talking about you too, they're kind of recording with some some more random objects. He uses some some lesser heard percussion sounds on here as well, which I think is really interesting. Um, what did you think of this record, man? It was, it was kind of new for you too, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, way new. It was good. <laughs> it was new. unexpected. Feels more like something that would have been made in the 1990s. Yeah, it does not like, sound like an 80s record at all. It sounds to me like a college radio yeah. station type of deal from 1993. Yeah. But yeah, it was good. I mean, it's certainly nice to hear something new that I had no idea existed. And um, that's kind of part of the fun of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sound like, I don't know, not 80s. But... <laughs> What'd you think of that Beatles cover? Yeah. Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Right, right. That, that took me by surprise, and I was like, eh. You didn't like it? Uh, You're a big Beatles fan, I so I maybe it was a little easier for me to swallow, I guess, because I wasn't, you know, I'm not a yeah. huge Beatles guy. And it wasn't very far from the original in terms of the way that mm. it sounded either. Yeah. So well, I guess they're big Beatles fans. Um also, Velvet Underground was a big influence for them, and you can hear that okay. a lot of times. Mm-hmm. He'll, he tries to, the vocalist there, he'll try, kind of, at times like try to imitate Lou Reed and, and his sound a little bit. Let's play one more cut from it. This is Facila. 
what the hell is that about, dude? <laughs> <laughs> Lyrically, I have no idea what they're talking about, but they do a really interesting job of combining some of these complicated rhythmic structures with some very nice melodies vocally there. Um, yeah, it's one of those bands that like you wonder if they if they just happened to be around 10 or 15 years later, if they would have been a lot more popular. Um, obviously, they were very influential, you know, bands like... Uh, Sonic Youth, we mentioned R.E.M. I've given them a lot of credit for, you know, taking their sound from what they were doing back in the in the early 80s. You know, if you're a fan of those bands, um, it's probably worth checking out. They put out a few records um, in the early 80s, and then I get, they get together later on um, to do some reunion shows and, and a record. But uh, this is definitely the, the cool one to check out. It's, uh, it's a really fun listen. And it's short. Check it out. It's uh, the Feelies with Crazy Rhythms. Number three. It's time for number three, everybody. And I'm just going to play it because I don't think I need to say it. Andy, what what's this what's this tune? I wish I could sing like you do, man, because uh, I would love to come in with that. Back in black, right now, but that uh, wasn't bad. <laughs> it's iconic guitar riff. So yeah, that's right. This is a 1980 album by ACDC called Back in Black. If you say Back in Black, people all automatically start singing. <laughs> so had to pick this one because uh, it was huge, like 10 million records sold, their biggest album of all time, and it was a landmark rock record in its sales, but it was in the same year that they lost their original singer, Bon Scott, he had uh, died in February, and they released this album in July. Whoa. And they had just come off of uh, Highway to Hell, which was a platinum-selling album and one my favorite ACDC record. And uh, they got a new singer, Brian Johnson. They went through a basically a marathon. They went, I think they went to like the uh, Bahamas to record this album. Uh, in April and May of 1980. And um, the songs were composed by Brian Johnson, Angus and Malcolm Young, the guitar player and, and bass player brothers. Uh, musical content consists of hard rock style numbers. Uh, Mutt Lang, who is famous for producing all sorts of stuff, Def Leppard and ACDC and Shania Twain, who he was married to, kind of helped them shape their sound and really work on Johnson's vocals. Apparently, the album cover was black as a sign of mourning for Bon Scott. And apparently, they say it has sold an estimated 50 million copies worldwide. Wow. This album made them the the iconic group that they are, and they have that signature sound. What do you think, man? Had you heard this before? Uh, yes, I had. This is one of the few records from this year that I actually had heard in its entirety <laughs> before. <laughs> That's only because it's such an iconic record. I mean, it's it's almost a cliche of itself now. It's been so popularized in our culture. These singles on here are just... You hear about like every sporting event you ever been into in your life. I mean, one of these is going to play. 
I think that's kind of like the secret to this music is it's it's very approachable. It's fun to sing along with, but it's hard rocking. It's not like it's uh you know wimpy or accessible in any way. You wouldn't think it would be, but it's yeah, it's something they've they've found that kind of like compromise between being edgy and still like inviting. Yeah, and, and you know they've recorded tons of other records, but this by far is like the most classic. I'm actually wearing a Back in Black T-shirt today. And uh, nice. holding my vinyl, my vinyl copy of this album. So we're gonna hit it with one more song, and then we're moving on to moving on to number whatever's next. <laughs> Probably two. Love this record. I think it belongs here. It was the number three pick, ACDC, Back in Black. Number two. Uh, coming in at number two is an 80s record that sounds like an 80s record. It's from the new wave synth pop group Devo and their record, Freedom of Choice. Devo. Do you know what Devo stands for, man? I didn't realize this until uh, we did the show. De-evolution? There you go. That's right. <laughs> I remembered. I didn't look that up or anything. I didn't even think about it. Okay. You just asked me, and I it was built in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were they were kind of all about standing out, had lesser opinions on modern society, maybe thought we were a little uh, herd-like. But anyway, they were comprised of two sets of brothers. It formed in 1973. This was their third studio record. It was on Warner Brothers' label. I know my first impression of Devo was this album cover with those weird little temple hats on they had, which are apparently called the uh, Energy Dome hats. You know, those those red pyramid-shaped hats. Yes. <laughs> kids, kids at school had them. I, I remember saying that they were flower pots, Back in the day, I was yeah. like, "What do they have flower pots?" I said, on their heads? "Flower pots, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> there was a weird rumor going around that they were, you know, like the pyramids were supposedly thought to be like energy, um, you know, a ways to like transmit energy from the universe. And so there was an idea out there that these guys were like super powered by uh, cosmic waves through their skull, you know, and producing like this weird futuristic music. Um, but this record really, it really blew up with this. Uh, it had four big singles on it. Uh, Whip It, remember that song was, uh, was the most popular along with oh, God. the video. It was like moly, everywhere. Yeah. Even when I, in my lifetime, I've never seen that video quite a bit. Just, you know, obviously the synth sound was something that was new, um, and they were jumped on board here with this record. Um, before this, they were a little bit more guitar heavy, but the guitars are really in the background on this record, and it's all about the synth and that kind of like cold, calculated uh, electronic sound. 
What did you think about this record, man? Did you? I know you're not a huge fan, but yeah, it's really synthy, and <laughs> they were, you know, I get. I get the appeal. I mean, they had a definite niche group of people that were way into their sound and everything. And for me, you know, it's just, it was okay. I, I It wasn't like, I didn't dread it or anything like that, but, you know, it didn't uh, get anything revving for me. But, you know, I had been listening to a lot of ACDC, so <laughs> I was uh, at a different power level, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, this is like for the nerdy guys and... You know, this is the <laughs> the total the guys that ACDC fans are like kicking the crap out of after school. Uh, let's play <laughs> let's play one more cut from the uh, this is the title track "Freedom of Choice." There's a little guitar rock for you. They still could play a little bit. Yeah, that's, that was <laughs> that was basically Slash right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I always liked them as a band. I felt like they had a lot to say and were, were cool with kind of working outside the normal boundaries. And I think this is like you know probably their best record and definitely defined the sound for this time. I mean, it was a new form. It was a new way of making music. So a they, new uh, wave. They were pioneers. Uh, yes, a new wave, but it, they were pioneers of a new type of sound and using electronic sounds to help make music, which I think, I think some of that's the building blocks for like EDM and, and things of that nature. Word up. That nicely segues into our number one choice. Number one. Uh, yeah. Coming in at number one for both of us is Talking Heads and their 1980s release, Remain in Light. Let's play a cut from that. This is Once in a Lifetime. So this was the fourth studio album by the Talking Heads, uh, once again called Remain in the Light, and uh, it was on Sire Records, produced by Brian Eno, who went on to do his own music, but also, I think, as well-known producer, worked with U2 in, uh, on Joshua Tree and other records later on in the 80s. Uh, this was another one that... Uh, we're talking about that was added to the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress. That uh, Parliament album we talked about mm-hmm. a little way back also was. So we are an esteemed company here, us album nerds. Yeah, it's a, the, the music is, is largely based around the rhythms they were recording. They went down to the Bahamas and recorded for a few weeks uh, with Brian, you know, and basically laid down some jams based on what they were doing on the Fear of Music sessions, uh, which was their previous record, um, and built out some pretty long jam structures based on that. From there, they went back to New York and, and laid down the uh, 
some ideas for the uh, the lyrics, and it was all kind of just nonsensical stream of consciousness um, thought behind the lyrics. It wasn't more about the feeling, less about the, the actual words themselves. I know I spent a lot of time trying to make sense of these songs growing up. What the hell are they talking about? <laughs> and uh turns out it's it's mostly just whatever was going through uh, David Byrne's head. I mean, you know, for me, the same as it ever was in Once in a Lifetime, all I remember is that MTV video and where he's got the giant shoulder pad thing going yeah, on in his jacket. Big suit coat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, these bands, Talking Heads, Devo included, this new wave, I think, wouldn't have been made possible without the burgeoning MTV, which came along, yes. uh, you know, around that time, a little later on, and and it, uh, it, it, they picked up a lot of new wave music, and the Talking Heads are well respected because they were artists trying to create a sound that had not been done before. So I, that's that's what I took away from this album, and I I think it belongs at number one because of its influence it's broad broad influence yeah it is definitely a very unique sound they created here and something that you see as soon as you hear one of these tracks you're like oh that's a talking heads track and let's play one more of those songs it's it's very iconic for them this is cross-eyed and painless That great combination of those like haunting David Byrne vocals there with that kind of spastic uh, percussion going on behind him. So good, so good. It's a really interesting record all the way through besides the, the popular songs there. There's some really cool instrumental tracks or tracks that are largely instrumental as you get deeper into the record. It definitely had that alternative spirit that we kind of talked about with um, the feelies. There's something about it that is somewhat out of time mm-hmm. because I feel like other music alternative music that came along and indie rock really you know was seeded by this and had similar sonics to it yeah i mean that's when we look back this far at least for me this far back into the past uh you kind of look for those gems that that do stand the test of time and, and i guess become that's what we call classic i mean that's essentially what it is something that's held up and and pointed the way into the future and I think these five records here we picked out all have done that in their own way. All right. So that was the Fave Five, man. Fave Five of 1980. We kind of, we limped through, but we got it done. So thank you, people. Thank you. <laughs> uh, coming up next week on the show, we're going to be uh, talking about a new release. We got a record out from a band that's very special to both of us that we're going to be highlighting. I like them more. <laughs> yeah, I liked him first. No, you didn't. I liked him first. We'll hash this out next week. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, where can they find us, man? Well, they can find us everywhere. They can right now if they're listening, they can the the album nerds can find us in their ears. But you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and symbol at album nerds. You can uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Give us a rating. It's helpful to the show to help other people find us. Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, 
Uh, tell us about your very favorite albums over at albumnerds.com. That's the website, the home of the nerds. You can comment. You can listen to the podcast there if you want. Uh, but tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell everybody that loves music in your life about the Album Nerds podcast. Let's get this thing rolling. And uh, let's share some music with each other, fools. So thank you for listening to this edition of the Album Nerds podcast. We will catch you next time. See you next week, everybody. Bye.